To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? I uh, got a brand new Eastman's Elevated podcast for you. So this week I have on Eastman's own Brandon Mason. So he's been on the podcast before. I really like Brandon. He's got a, a good set of ethics on him, and uh, the guy is really intelligent. He's a former biologist, um, and he does a, a really good job uh, of articulating good points. He's a great storyteller. Uh, just a good all-around guy, too. Um, I always really enjoy our conversations, whether we're on the phone or, or in person at the office or having them on the podcast. So um, this this year, he did a Alaska float hunt, and we talked about it before he went because I had done one two years ago. And so I tried to kind of give him some heads up, and um, we talked about gear, and we talked about strategy and some different things. And then he went on this float hunt and just had a great experience. Uh, we talked one day for probably an hour on his Alaska float hunt, and uh, I wish I re- would have recorded that podcast, but um, this one w- was even better as we were able to go over the same stories and same points he made, and uh, just a super guy. I, I really like Brandon, so um, thanks to him for being back on the podcast. Um, our sponsor for today's show is Bloodsport Arrows. So been using Bloodsport Arrows here for a couple seasons. Um, they have great uh, straightness tolerance on their shafts. They also have great weight tolerance. Uh, they have good components. Uh, I've had good luck with their arrows. And then they also have some broadheads lines. And they have, you know, a, a fixed blade like I used in Idaho, which is a three-blade fixed blade broadhead um, that did really well for me. And then they have a couple different types that I've been using the last couple seasons. They have one that's a straight expandable. It opens to an inch and seven-eighths. It's a two-blade. Um, the thing is so aerodynamic. It flies so well for like antelope or any long range game, you know, where you're dealing with wind drift, these broadheads are money and they're just devastating. I've had really good luck with them, but it's a two blade inch and seven eighths and the blades really disappear into the, disappear into the ferrule. So there isn't much blade sticking out to catch wind and throw your arrows off to wind drift. So they're just a a really accurate broadhead. Um, They also have another line that is their Grave Diggers. And that's a four blade and it's a hybrid between an expandable and a fixed blade. So it's got an inch fixed blade on it. And then the other way, it's got an expandable inch and seven eight. So it's actually a four blade broadhead. Uh, I've been using these on bigger game animals like like elk, and I've even used them on on mule deer, and and they'll work on about anything. But it's devastating. You hit something with those, and they just do not make it that far. Um, so check out Bloodsport. Thanks to those guys for sponsoring the podcast. Um, over there at Eastman's, uh, I know the guys have been making the rounds at the shows. Um, so they've been doing that and keeping busy there, and and uh, we, we've got a, a bunch of cool things in the works. Um, I think uh, Dan Picard and Guy Eastman went on that Marco Polo to Tajikistan. Uh, we recorded a podcast on it, and they also have it as an episode of Beyond the Grid. Um, that's going to be coming out here soon, so we'll be on the lookout for that and uh, also release that podcast, which is just a great one. It's uh, with Dan and Guy, and then Ike sat in on it. We just had a great time there at the office talking about it. What an extreme hunt. It was just unreal. 
Um, so that's cool. That's coming out. Uh, been working on the podcast a bunch. We've had a, a bunch of good guests that I'll be releasing here soon and, and uh, more to come in the future. And uh, I think we're putting out really good content. I'm really proud of, of the product that we're putting out. And it's one of those things I, I've just been working on to improve. And it's just slowly but surely I'm getting better at it. And uh, it, I've talked about it before, but it's, um, it's weird. You have to be in the moment uh, you know, with your guests. You can plan all you want, but you have to really play off what, what your guest is saying. And, and when your guest makes a good point, you know, it's... It, it, it's being able to to highlight that point and expand on it uh, a little bit. And so, um, yeah, I think I, I feel like I'm getting better at it and improving at it. And uh, uh, I'm really proud of the content we're putting out. And thanks to you guys for, for all the support. I just uh, can't wait to see where this, this podcast goes over the next year. Um, and with that, I've been talking long enough. Let's get this podcast rolling. So it's me and Brandon Mason. We're talking about Float Hunting Alaska uh, Eastman's Elevated, here we go. Okay, I'm here with uh, Eastman's own Brandon Mason. Um, Brandon, thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. It's been a while since we were able to do this. And, and uh, you know, you, you came down here uh, a couple weeks, what was it, before Christmas, I think, and or a week or two before Christmas, and... We were able to do a bunch of podcasts with the guys in the office, and we tried to do it then, and now it's February, and we, we couldn't do it then because I was sicker than a dog and kind of had a hoarse-sounding voice. So, yeah, I'm glad it finally worked out. Yeah, well, we've been trying to connect. We both did an Alaskan float trip, and you just did yours this last season, and you just had some incredible stories about floating down, and you, you also learned a lot of lessons, as I learned a lot of lessons. And so I just wanted to sit down and, and just have a conversation about float hunting Alaska and benefits and, and things people can prepare for more and, and what's to be expected. So when guys out there are planning their own do-it-yourself float trip in Alaska, that, that they have some, some more knowledge going into it. Yeah, that's the thing with a lot of these types of major adventure trips, whether it's a, a Intermountain West type trip after elk and you live out in the eastern part of the United States and this is a once-in-a-lifetime deal or it's guys like us that live out here but we go up to Alaska or Canada and go on some other unique adventures. Most of the time, these types of trips are once-in-a-lifetime because of the cost and the logistics. And so the unfortunate thing is that you, you go on these trips and you learn a lot while you're on them. By, and about the time that you're done with the trip, you've really figured out how you're supposed to do it, and then the trip's done. And so, you know, in kind of the, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, man, next year when I'm up here, I'm going to do this and that. And then you go, oh, wait, reality just hit me. I may never get to come up here again. And so the nice thing about us being able to share a few tidbits here and there is hopefully if somebody else is planning an adventure like this, it'll maybe take, you know, maybe a couple of variables out of the way for them so that they can be ahead of the game, enjoy their trip more, and maybe, you know, be a little more successful. Absolutely. And and I do want to get back up and experience it again. And we floated a couple rivers systems like we weren't too far away from each other in the river systems that we floated. So we were in right. the same type of terrain and we were both hunting for for moose and then um, caribou if we saw them in there. And, and uh, you just had a great trip and, and you guys harvested one moose. Uh, not a moose. We got a caribou. Got a caribou. Uh, we okay. had. Had a bunch of close encounters with some moose. Um, either the big ones that we saw, we couldn't uh, get in on them, or 
the the ones that we had some crazy close encounters, which we can talk about, um, they just were sublegal bulls. So in that area, you have to have, in a lot of parts of Alaska, you have to have a minimum of 50-inch spread and at least four brow tines on one side, or excuse me, not and, it's either or. So 50-inch spread or four brow tines on one side. And the, the bulls that we had the best encounters with were just not quite there yet. And, and, and that's another thing, too, that's an educational process um, is just field judging them because it's not like you get to hunt moose every year. The, the most sportsmen in the United States or even Canada for that matter, they, they don't get to hunt moose every year. It's kind of one of those bucket list species, so to speak, I guess. And, you know, again, like we said, about the time you figured out really how to do it right, your hunt's over. But, you know, places like the Alaska, uh, fishing game website, they have some really great moose identification videos and kind of test your skills on field judging and making sure you're legal. And, you know, as with anything, no matter what you're hunting, if you're not sure, don't shoot. You know, just don't don't go there. It's not worth it. Yeah, you can't make a mistake up there. And um, trying to judge those moose that you don't look at all the time is difficult. And so for me, you know, 50 inch wide is legal. But really, he's got to be about 55 for me to say you know, positively that that is a legal moose. And so, yeah, that was kind of my learning curve as well as learning how to judge those moose and, and what a 50 inch moose does look like in best case scenario, he's got four brow tines or four points on one of his brow tines and you know, he's legal. There's no doubt about it. And, And those big ones, when they get to 60 inches or bigger, there's no doubt in your mind, you know it, but some of those ones that are on the border, whether they're 48 or 52, we just had to pass them because I didn't know if they were legal or not. Yeah, we made a rule of thumb on our trip that, and I even talked to Guy about this before we went up there because he's not, he hasn't done a float hunt, I don't think, but he's, you know, been up there and hunting. And the good rule of thumb is if it's an iffy bull from a spread standpoint, don't even look at the spread, pound those brow ties. And if they have the brow ties, it's game on. If not, then just move on, pass them up. They'll, you know, there's, there's not, you know, per square mile, Alaska has the least dense wildlife populations, I think, of any place in the United States. But um, but there's still a lot of animals, and, and most of the time you're going to see a fair amount. And we saw, I think in our 10-day trip, we saw 9 or 10 moose, which on a moose hunt's quite a bit. And it's just not worth the risk of, is he 50, is he 48, is he 52? Count those brow tines. And if he doesn't have the brow tines, just don't, don't take the chance. Now, like you said, when you get to that 60-inch plus, there's no guesswork. It is big. And uh, you don't have to worry about brow ties. We saw one on the trip that I, I was kind of being stubborn and sticking to my recurve for some reason. I had this thought in my head since I was uh, in my upper teens, and I'm 41 now, so it's been quite a while, that someday I want to go to Alaska, and I have to do it with my recurve. I have no good reason why that was a goal. I have no no rational explanation, but for some reason I wanted to do it with my stick bow and and we took a rifle with two for Casey and Casey's also a traditional archer like I am um, at times when we're not shooting our compounds or whatever. And, and uh, we took one recurve and one rifle and just thought that way we can each shoot either if we want. And, uh, but I was going to be pretty stubborn and stick to the, to the recurve. And, and I was pretty disciplined until we saw a giant moose. And if I could have got my hands on the rifle fast enough that, that bull would have died. <laughs> <with the rifle. laughs> he was so big. He was, I, I've been calling him cartoonish. I mean, his body size, Brian was probably 
and Casey's a wildlife biologist, as am I. And uh, so we've kind of, you know, been in the field a lot, been in a lot of uh, situations where we, we, we know what we're looking at. And he was 20 to 30% bigger body size than any other moose we saw. I mean, he was just enormous. And his rack was, I mean, he was upper 60s easily for spread. And it was just, like I said, he, he looked cartoonish. It didn't look like what we were looking at was even a real animal. He was so big. And so I was willing to forgo the recurve on that. But Casey, the rifle was in Casey's raft. And by the time Casey got his raft stopped on the gravel bar that the moose was on, he was gone. And, and I couldn't do anything about it. But um, it was cool to see him, though. Yeah. Um, I, I also got the opportunity to see a couple just gigantic bulls and one that just stood out that, like you say, that exact description of cartoonish. Uh, the body size was absolutely gigantic. And there was just no doubt about it. And just such an impressive animal to see and and like you i had a great experience up there like they don't have a lot of animals per square mile um but but those animals use those those river drainages to travel and so you know their populations are a little bit more condensed but yeah i think um we saw uh 10 different bulls on on our hunt and like i think out of the 10 four of them were were legal shooters that we thought were either had the four brow tines or were over 55 inches and and uh seeing those big ones is so impressive um it it uh you'd almost do anything to catch up to them but they just uh the big ones zigged when we needed them to zag and so uh we were the same way and we called in one that was just right on the border you know he looked to be about 50 inches but like you say we just had to pass him we didn't know if he was 48 or if he was 52 and and you just can't make a mistake up there and he only had three brow tines um so it, it was too bad if he had four i think he would have caught an arrow Yep. Yep. Exactly. It's tempting. And you're on this once in a lifetime trip and you really want to come home with something. And, but it is, I mean, no matter where you're at, it's not worth taking an iffy shot, but Alaska, uh, their department has zero flex in their rules. So, uh, that if there's a place that you do not want to break a game violation, it's Alaska. And, uh, I've heard some horror stories of what guys have, even if it was just ignorance in an accident, what, what happened to them, you know, legally, it's it's just not a good situation so if there's any doubt at all don't shoot and wait for the next opportunity yep absolutely zero tolerance in alaska you have to make sure you're you're right to the to the letter of the law up there because yeah they take it serious and and rightfully so it's it's a great resource they have there and they don't want guys cheating or breaking any rules they definitely don't want anybody wasting any edible meat up there and so yeah they take their laws really serious and 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 you have to do the same which we all do everywhere we hunt but but even more so in alaska as those wardens will fly over and check on you and and uh you know they they really take it serious up there and so you you have to make sure you do everything the right way Yep, exactly. And plus, you know, when you're doing these DIY float hunts or drop camps or whatever, you, you want to leave the place as pristine and wild as you found it when you got there. And so you don't want to make any mistakes. You want to leave a clean camp. You uh, you know, you don't want to have an, an oops as far as shooting the wrong animal that's legal. Um, and it, it's just, you know, it puts a black eye on the rest of the hunters out there and and could potentially in the future lead to more limited opportunities for sportsmen up there. So, you know, we owe it to each other to be responsible, to take care of the meat the way we're supposed to, to take care of our campsites the way we're supposed to, 
and just you know leave it as pristine as you found it or better if possible pick up litter obviously that's kind of the hunter safety courses that they tell that they that we all learn and we that they teach you that you know leave it better than the way you found it if possible and that's what we try to do and and thankfully honestly we uh, i owe a lot of that to i mean part of it's the way i was raised but some of the resources that uh, a gentleman by the name of Larry Bartlett has put out over the years where he's really passionate about leaving those pristine places pristine. In fact, his company is called Pristine Ventures, and that's where we rented our rafts from. And and uh, he's very, very strict and diligent about anybody that he helps out as far as you know leading them on their way to a DIY adventure that he really uh, uh, performs some surveillance on the river corridors that people use to make sure that he's not leaving an impact on them and a negative impact on them. And uh, I really appreciate it. And I learned a lot from his books and his, and his DVDs and everything. And that really helped prepare for the hunt. Uh, yeah. I used the same resource and that's where we bought our rafts that we used for our adventure as well. He built some great rafts for Alaska, but yeah, you're right. Leaving it uh, better than you found it or as pristine as you found it, it, it is a giant deal there. And it, you get in those river valleys and I, I've never experienced a vastness as I did when I landed in Alaska and I'm a hundred miles from the nearest road. Like you, you get in this valley, like the valley I live in, in the Madison Valley, it'd be like landing here and looking around and there's no houses no cabins no roads no trails no humans you are in this giant alaskan valley and you have it all to yourself and that's a really neat feeling and it's a, a neat experience to go down there and it's so pristine that i never saw one piece of trash i never saw one sign of humans i i never saw anything there and so you want to leave it as good as you found it and also like like how much would that sour your experience if you saved up and you did this once in a lifetime and you ended up making a mistake killing a 49 inch bull and it got confiscated in the the tickets and the repercussions you know not not only the tickets or the repercussions but what about the memories that you've waited a whole lifetime to go have this experience and then you you tainted by making a mistake and so you you, you just can't be wrong you, you have to be right 100 percent of the time yeah it's just not worth it and then you know not just the memories that you're always going to have that would be negative from a type of experience like that but you know how it is everybody you know whether it's through work or family or friends or whatever, knows that you're going on this epic trip. And for the next year and a half, you're going to be answering the question, hey, man, how was your float hunt? And you have to tell them, well, I shot the wrong animal and I got ticketed and it was really a negative experience. And who wants to tell that story? Not me. (laughs) Yep, it just isn't worth it. Uh, Embrace the experience, know you're right, and uh, uh, make the right decisions while you're there. But um, that that float hunting is such a great way to to hunt Alaska as it is so vast and you have to use a float plane to get around. And like a, a drop camp, if they drop you in an area, can either go really well or it can go uh, really bad where you're not seeing animals. And so like having a, a float trip allows you to travel these river drainages. And like like we were saying before, the, the river drainages are, are where, as 
the moose use them as travel corridors in and through there. So that's where those moose are. And so you get to travel down in the exact country that those moose like to use. And so I just found it a great way to be mobile and be able to hunt in different locations. You know, and those moose are so big that you can only hunt. You know, they say don't shoot a, mo- a moose more than a mile from your camp. And so for me, I think that meant two or three miles. <laughs> so just the way my head works is that, uh, you know, if I kill a big moose, I will get them back to camp every stitch of meat. And, and that'll be my experience but you really can't venture too far to shoot a moose you know as far as like backpack hunting and things that it has to be close to a river system or close to a landing strip where you can get the moose out of there yeah i mean besides the fact that they're just a giant animal that is really hard to comprehend how big they are until you see one down i shot a moose when i was 18 years old in north dakota where i'm originally from and uh, drew a once in a lifetime tag and obviously everybody knows they're big and and everything i mean that's why you see a big dog and you'll say man that thing looks like a moose well it's a standard term for big but until you see one laying there that you got to process you can't comprehend how big these animals are so that's number one and number two is that country up there is so hard to hike in that tundra is just rough i mean i've heard various expressions on how to you know from different hunters on how to describe how hard it is to hunt or hike across the tundra and my, my own i would say conservatively that a mile on the tundra is like three uh, in any other terrain at least and it is just in fact we landed on a remote mountain lake on a float plane and when we got dropped off and we had to pack our two rafts and our you know everything we have for 10 days for surviving and our hunting gear and everything to the little creek that kind of streamed out of this uh, out of this remote lake and turned into the bigger river we hit a couple confluences and everything along this river system and just packing that uh, equipment and our wraps and everything from the lake to the better wider part of this of the this creek that we could start uh, float hunting down um the next day or the day after was I'm trying to remember. I think it was less than a half a mile, and it kicked my butt, man. It was like (laughs) we had to make, I think, three trips uh, back and forth. And by the time we got the tent set up that night, I was like, holy cow, this is only day one. We haven't even started the float yet, and we're tired. And uh, it's just that tundra. It's really neat country, but it is so hard to walk through. And it can be really dangerous, too. There's a lot of – I don't remember what the official term is. Maybe you do, but there's some – almost like a – we hear about a false summit in the mountains where, you know, there's a one more mountain peak behind the peak that you thought you were, you were hiking to, uh, which turns out not to be the summit. Um, there's like a, a false false ground there that's almost like a floating tundra. And there's people that have died up there, disappeared, gone forever that nobody ever heard from again. And so you really got to know what to look for when you're hiking across the tundra too because it can be life-threatening. I mean, it, it's really – and once you know what to look for, you can kind of spot it. But if you're just aimlessly walking and not paying attention, you can disappear with your pack on and everything, and nobody will ever hear from you again. Oh wow, that is so scary. Yeah, it's um, yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, you're right. It's like a false ground, and right underneath it, it's all water, and so you sink through it, and then you're gone. It's like being underneath ice. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, I think they call the land up there terra firma or something like that. It's the opposite of that. <laughs> it's oh. uh, I've heard a couple guys' uh, stories of near-death experience with that even years ago when i was oh boy probably in my 20s or something i heard chuck adams speak 
about that. He was talking about some adventures where he almost lost his life and chasing the super slam and everything. And he had kind of one of those near death experiences in a circumstance like that, that really caught my attention before I ever got to go up to places like that. And that's always stuck with me to really be vigilant of what you're looking for. And, and you're right. That tundra or that muskeg, that, that stuff, you said one mile equals three, and like you say, I, I don't even know if that's accurate. Like, it is so tough to walk through, and you, you hear that it's tough to yeah. walk through, and you read that it's tough to walk through, but it's just different when you actually get up there and start stepping across it, and it's all these soft mounds that come up, and then all around the soft mounds are this lowland, water, boggy country, and so you don't know whether to step in the middle in the bog or to step on the high spots, and it doesn't seem like either way works very well. Like you'll try one way for a little bit, and then that doesn't work, and then you'll start stepping in the low spots, and it, it's just really ankle-twisting, moving country, and it's it's really soft, and so your feet sink in at every step. And also, it's trying to roll yourself over. It's trying to roll your ankles with every step, roll it one way or another. I did find that high, that trekking poles really helped in that country, but it just takes a such an exertion level from your legs, like trying to balance on that stuff and walk across it, that, yeah, you do one mile, and it feels like you've walked five. Like, that stuff is so tough to move through. Yeah, not only that, you mentioned how it – it's kind of un, oh, not more than kind of it's really uneven ground and you and it's funny to hear you say that mindset where you're, should i stay on top of, the, of these musk eggs or should i walk in between them and i think everybody that's ever walked through stuff like that you do this balancing act of oh it's got to be easier the other way no it's got to be easier the other way because it's just a pain in the butt to do and uh, when we had our rafts uh one of the rafts in particular is pretty heavy and we were toting that across the the tundra it was all I could do a couple times not to twist my knee. I mean, it, it, you could start off a trip really bad by twisting a knee or an ankle if you're not careful hiking across that stuff. And you're right, trekking poles were a godsend on that. We uh, we use those to to transport our stuff across that, and then also to pack the bull that Casey he shot with his rifle uh, down off the hillside. That was just a tundra hillside. I mean, you would think you know water flows downhill. There can't be any more water up on top. And no, I mean, everywhere that you step or kneel or sit or anything is wet. And compared to the high desert that we live here in north northern Wyoming, I had never, by the end of the trip, even though I had blast, I had never longed for a dry, dusty antelope hunt in August when it's 100 degrees so much in my life. I, I never thought I'd dream of uh, bow hunting antelope in August when it's just hot and miserable. But at the, I was so tired of being wet by the end of the trip. It's like... Okay, I'd kill for an animal pun right now. <laughs> it was just so, I mean, you're like a prune by the end of the trip. Well, yeah, and just dry ground you can walk across and cover country. Like you see those moose and it looks like you can get to them. And pretty soon, a half a day later, you're you're not even to the spot where you saw the moose. It's it's uh, it, it's uh, such a uh, – it blows your mind up there how tough it is to traverse that country. And so you got to keep that in mind too. And so hunting those river bottoms is a good way to go. And it seems like those moose really like those – those timber patches in that river bottom and like to move along that river, river corridor. But it, for some reason, it doesn't seem to – for moose and caribou to move across that tundra, it doesn't seem like it makes it any tougher on them. Like they're just used to it, their four-wheel drive, and, and they just motor through that stuff. It doesn't slow them down a bit. 
No, you can tell that they're used to cruising that. But I, I, I could tell, though, on the trip that the moose definitely don't move quite as easily as the caribou do across that. I mean, I think that's why they gravitate towards those river corridors where they're a little more easier for them to traverse. I mean, they still move way easier than we do across the tundra and everything. But we did. It was kind of funny. We came across a tight bend in the river, and we saw a couple cow moose right there, and we scared them because you're moving pretty silently through the water, and the water's raging anyway. And uh, we came across or around this corner, and boom, two cow moose right there in our face, and we scared them. And it was funny watching them trying to run fast across the tundra because they did struggle with that a little bit. They were stumbling a little bit. It was pretty comical to watch. Okay. Uh, kind of nice to see them have the same challenge as we do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and like I said, reiterated that why they priced it closer to the river itself. They can move a little bit easier. What did you find um, was the best for footwear in that muskeg or that tundra? We practically lived in our waders and our wading boots. Um, what we didn't wear, um, I don't know if this is smart or not, but we didn't wear waders that had the boots attached. Uh, now, I will say this. We were just at SHOT Show, and we saw the new uh, waterfowl waders that Sika came out with, and I would have loved to have tried those on a float hunt like that. I think that would have been pretty interesting to try them out. But either way, I didn't have those. I had uh, a very lightweight pair of fly fishing waders that I had bought at Sports' Warehouse a couple of years ago, some of their Rustic Ridge pairs, and uh, and then some uh, Sims wading boots. And you pretty much live in them. I mean, it, you, you wear them until you go to bed at night, and you get up in the morning, and you put on your waders and wet boots, and some nights they were fro- or some mornings they were frozen. In fact, we took some video footage with our phones where it showed us cracking the frost off of our waders and our boots in the morning before we got into them. And uh, I, I think on our trip, we called we were using a seek outside shelter, um, and it was their uh, Red Cliff, the the bigger one. And we had one of the stoves in there too, and that was just a lifesaver because you could at least take the chill off. It still wasn't pleasant, but you could take the chill off before you got started for the day and feel like you're not starting from frozen anyway. Uh, but that's what we found to be the best. And we'd usually have a pair of camp shoes, you know, either half worn out tennis shoes or hiking shoes or something uh, to wear around camp. I did. I did have a pair of. Oh, what brand were they? I think they were a pair of muck boots um, that weren't the traditional muck boot. They were more of a lace-up, super lightweight type of a muck boot that I packed with. And they were great as far as as long as the water wasn't you know above my shins. And they were comfortable to wear. And, and I used them around um, Casey's Caribou and around camp that time. But the problem is they don't breathe. And I was sweating pretty good because the temperature was a little bit warmer that day. When I say warmer, it was like the highest day I think was 50 in this day it was probably 45 or something, so it's not like it was hot. But I was plenty warm um, processing the caribou and everything, which is a whole other story in and of itself because Casey had, had jumped in the river to stop our raft so we could get to the shore to recover his caribou. He was neck deep in water, everything. I mean, he had water billowing over his waders, and it was one of those near-death experiences that um, – it was the smartest and the dumbest thing he could have done on that trip. It was a superhuman feat that he jumped out and grabbed a, a tree limb and still had a hold of the raft and literally butterflied the raft and the tree limb together. I jumped out, got on the shore, and because there wasn't a gravel bar there, it was just a, a bank, I should say, got up on the river bank, and, uh, and then we pulled the raft up so we could get to his caribou, because otherwise we were going to be miles downstream 
and not knowing how we could get back to those caribou. We, we assumed coming around the corner there was going to be another, another gravel bar that we could pull off on, and we were wrong. <laughs> and we got around the corner, and the water was raging. And uh, it was probably the most serious rapids that we faced along the trip. And, and, you know, to be honest, we're not experienced. I mean, we'd been in river rafts before and in whitewater rafted a little bit, but nothing crazy or extreme. And this was getting to be a little bit outside of our comfort zone and because of the moisture that we'd had. And uh, anyway, we get up on the shore and uh, we start doing that rewarming drill actually with him um, after we had done some video wrap-up footage and t- taking pictures of him and his caribou. And then I proceeded to cut up the caribou while he went down to the tent. And we got him started doing the rewarming drill like we did with uh, John Barco at Sitka and per- perform that survival exercise on him because he was soaking wet. And uh, when you're in that wet climate with not very high temperatures, your stuff's not going to dry out. I mean, your clothes, if you, if you take your clothes off, think they're going to air dry or build up a fire, good luck. It's going to take a long time or it's not going to happen, and you're going to have some serious concerns uh, with safety and hypothermia and stuff. And so he, as, long, as soon as I made sure that he was had, a, had his wits about him and was okay mentally to take care of himself, I went up on the hill and cut up his caribou, which is about 300 yards off the river. And uh, anyway, so what I did is wore those, those lace-up muck boots up there so I didn't have to wear my waders all the way up top. And I, I had sweat so much when I was doing that and trying to be efficient and get this done before we got too far into the dark. Um, they never dried out the rest of the trip. And so hindsight, I don't know that I would ever wear a pair of boots like that on that trip again because they were wet and stinky and nasty. That was day two of the float. And we still had eight more days, actually nine until our pickup. And uh, it wasn't ideal. So what I would generally stick with is a pair of wading boots, lightweight pair of waders, and then have the waders big enough so you can insulate yourself, layer up underneath them if you have to, and then pretty much rely on the wading boots uh, for most of it, and then a pair of camp shoes. That's what I found anyway. Did you? I don't know. I can't remember what you took up there. Yeah, so um, same way I I use those breathable waders quite a bit, but I just found like the the hikes I was making, uh, you know, and I I do find that um, the hiking boots, like you had the boots that go on and uh, the boot fit waders, like as far as I do a ton of fishing for steelhead and trout and things, and the boot foot waders with the boots built into them are really good for the on and off and they're really good in a boat. But as far as hiking and hiking miles, like they're not no. so good cause they can slip around and you can get sores from them where the other lightweight, I think I've got some, some Patagonia wading boots, some real lightweight ones, you know, with my, my lightweight breathable waders. Um, I use that system, but I would get so hot trying to hike a mile or two in those things that I'd start sweating even in those breathable waders, you know. It was just real uncomfortable and tough to hike around. Now, that was definitely the system we used for in the rafts at all times and moving Mm -hmm. down the river systems and then hunting close to the river systems. But then when I'd hunt away from camp or I'd make a hike at night – you know, I like like a, a waterproof, lightweight pair of boots, but you had to be really careful that you didn't go over the top with water. So yeah. I, I'm not sure. I was thinking the system was a pair of muck boots, but you just proved me wrong on that, that you had those there and they got wet from hiking in them. So I don't know. I think those breathable waders with a good pair of hiking shoes for around the river, and, and then I think a good 
like a high waterproof lightweight hiking boot i think would be my next choice for for out there for trying to keep your feet dry but then being comfortable to to hike around but it it's tough there is no it doesn't seem like there's a a perfect fit for what you got to experience there yeah i think in hindsight what i would do is um, do what I did the previous year up in, uh, when Dan Picard and I went to British Columbia and we were hunting moose um, more from a cabin type site and going across lakes on boats and and hiking and, and things like that. What I would do, we we hiked quite a bit on that on that hunt. I had uh, muck type boots with me on that hunt, and then I also had um, I think I had I had Kenetrek uh, pack boots, and then uh, somebody else had Schnees, and you know of course they're real you know, similar products. And I would have something like that. If I would do a float hunt again, I would do, cause I got to test them both in British Columbia, which is really wet too. And so days we were walking with uh, water going up over top of our boots and going on longer hikes. The nice thing about those pack boots from either Schnees or Kenetrek is it, or even whites or any of those companies, you can lace them up and have them fit around your, your foot and your uh, lower part of your leg a little bit better. And so you can hike in them all day long. I mean, they're a little heavy and stuff compared to a lightweight hiker, but um, they're comfortable and you're not going to get blisters because I did go on a pretty long hike in British Columbia with a pair of loose-fitting muck boots on, and I paid for it for the rest of the trip. I, I it, it really, um, not injured, but stressed my Achilles tendon on one of my feet, and I kind of limped for the rest of the trip, so that was not a good time. And the nice thing about the, the pack boots uh, like you see from Kenneth Trick and Schnees, is they have that wool liner on the inside. So even if you get water that goes over the top of your boots or they end up leaking or something from a puncture from uh, from the type of terrain that's out there, your st- feet are still going to stay warm and feel somewhat dry because that wool is going to wick that moisture away. And at night, you can dry that wool out over your stove and your tent if you have it like we did. And, and that's what I would do. Hindsight, I'd have my waders my wading boots, a lightweight pair of camp shoes, and then a, a pair of pack boots, I think is the best system. I think you're right. A higher lace up and then have some gaiters so the, the grass doesn't get them wet, your pant legs there to where they start soaking into those boots. But uh, I think you're right. I think that's the the best combo a guy could have for there. But you got to have those breathable waders for going down that river. And, mm-hmm. and you got to be on your game when you're going down that river. You're so far away from civilization and so far away from help that you really are all on your own there. And the decisions you make determine your outcome, you know, on the hunt and also determine, you know, the determine your safety on a hunt like that. And, and those river systems, the, the ground is so soft. It seems like there, there's so many, overhanging trees and trees in the river which are are real dangers when you're floating down a river and so um you really have to be cognizant of it all the time to make sure that you're prepared for anything that you run into and whether it's rapids or what we would run into is sometimes you'd come around a tight corner and it'd shove you right into a bank or into a sweeping tree in there which is really dangerous and so having those waders on you're able to get to the bank and and pull off and then kind of walk your boat around some of those spots but you, you have to have those breathable waders for that for navigating that river yeah, because it's a full body workout the whole time you're doing that, especially if the river's moving fast. Like I said, this year or 2017, when we went, they had gotten a lot of moisture. Um, you know, the weeks, months leading up to when we when we went. And the, now I I will say this, even though it was 
uh, a little bit more of an adrenaline rush than what I'd bargained for uh, a couple of stretches of, of that river or of the two rivers that we were on. Actually, three rivers that we were on because of the couple of different confluences. Um, I would rather have it that way than um, the river system that I was on, and maybe yours is the same way. It's feast or famine. And so if you don't get a lot of that moisture beforehand, you're going to be dragging a lot. And so that's one of the terms that Larry Bartlett has coined uh, years ago called float dragging Alaska because you're half the time you're floating and half the time you're dragging. And luckily, we didn't have that problem. We didn't have to drag a bunch. We did a, a, just a real minor bit over some some riffles that we didn't navigate properly while when we were coming up to them. So we got a little hung up on some rocks, but nothing big. And uh, But the guys the year before, they drug for, I think, two days. Okay. And that does not sound like a good time to me at all. And so it, it's really feast or famine. If they don't get the moisture... You're going to be dragging those rafts, and especially after you get critters down, of course, the rafts weigh a lot more, and it just gets to be harder and harder to do that, and harder and harder to drag. And plus, you're tired, you're not sleeping very well, and and just exerting yourself. That that rowing in those in those uh, high flow river systems, I mean, it was like you were on a full body workout machine for eight hours a day. And by the time we got out of there, not only do you lose a lot of weight like you do on any backcountry hunt, but for the first time since I think I was in college, I actually had a six-pack. I'm like, holy cow, I should do this once a month, come up here and, and, <laughs> and do a float hunt. I felt like a, a beast, you know. I felt like I was, well, I was in really good shape, best shape I've been in in a while. And and But it's just because you are getting a full-body workout every single day on those hunts. And it's it's just a real butt kicker. That's why... You have to have a system down on your nutrition management and and your your uh, hydration because if you negate any of those any one of the days on a trip like that you can be in some serious trouble. Yes, absolutely. Well, and a, another thing that affects water flow um, is, is as it starts freezing up high, it's it starts releasing less and less water, and so the rivers yep. get smaller and smaller. And so the system that we were on started off small, and then as it started to hit confluences with other rivers and streams that came in, it got to be a bigger river. But at the start of it, yeah, it was some dragging involved, and that's what our pilot warned us about as he said, don't stay up high too long because if it gets cold or starts freezing at night and freezing during the day you know it's not melting up high and all of a sudden that that river will start to shrink up and then you can't get a boat down you're going to end up dragging the entire thing and so uh we had to remember that on our hunt as well and and yeah that dragging those rafts is um takes takes such exertion out of you and it is a a total body workout doing it and and then the rowing part, we had like an upriver wind every day, and so we mm. couldn't even just really float down and enjoy the float. We had to forward oar or turn the boat around backwards and backwards oar to make our way against the wind that was pushing up the stream. And so, yeah, I uh, I, I felt the same way when I got done with the, with the float hunt. I was in extremely good shape from <laughs> that uh, entire body workout the, the whole time. Yeah, I can believe that. I hadn't thought of that. We didn't run into too many uh, south winds when when we were floating down. We were mostly concerned about the the sweepers in in the face of the the really fast river character uh, that we'd experienced. So I didn't really have to row against the wind too much. I think we might have had one day where there's a little bit of a breeze from the south, but it wasn't anything that we had to fight. Yeah, that's a whole other obstacle. I mean, there's just a lot of things to consider when you're on a trip like that that you really can't 
foresee until you've done it. And or you, you know, hopefully hear a podcast like this and it helps you or read an article in a magazine or watch a video or whatever. And all those little things, it's hard to remember all all of these things when until you're up there, you know, and you're on a trip. and You think, oh, man, I should I should have prepared for this or that or whatever. There's just a lot of variables. Well, and and how tough is uh, is it on you day in, day out of picking up your camp and then loading it all into the raft and then rafting down and setting up your camp. By the end of the trip, you are so tired of picking up and, and resetting up your camp. You know, you, you just almost want to be done with it. But, but that's a major part to that hunt as well. Oh, definitely. It's funny. I was laughing when you said that because I, uh, you, you know, after you're doing it for a couple of days, you kind of get a good division of labor going with your buddy that, you just form a system and you know he's going to take care of that while you're taking care of this. And, you know, Casey shot his caribou on day two, so we had meat care to deal with at least twice a day, if not midday monitoring of the, of the meat, uh, depending on the temperatures and everything and the moisture levels as we're floating down. But so our system was we'd find a good gravel bar where we wanted to camp and call from in the evening. And uh, we would we would dock there and we'd anchor the rafts and he'd start on the meat cache and I'd start putting the tent up and getting the cots up because we were using those ultralight um, cots from uh, Helinox and also Thermarest. And uh, we're testing those out on the trip, which was kind of interesting. And um, I had set up that tent and taken that tent down, which is, and it's an easy tent to do. I mean, it's a floorless, lightweight shelter. It takes really just a few minutes to put up. But I told Casey on the last day, I said, if I have to set up that tent one more time, I'm going to rage because I was so sick and tired of putting that tent up and taking it down and dealing with the stove and dealing with the ashes and burying those and making sure nobody could tell where we were camped. And he's dealing with the meat cache and loading his raft with that. And I was getting the camping gear on mine. And, man, it was just like we were a factory. And uh, you wouldn't think, you know, listening to this hindsight, it sounds like, oh, poor me. I'm on this Alaska float hunt and I have to set up a tent every day. Big deal. But it's just such a mental drag that – you're doing this stuff. You're you're tired. You're you're you you've lost energy levels. Even though you're really trying to keep your nutrition level up, you're just tired and you're whipped out. And you've de- dealt with meat care and everything for all these days and near death experiences. And it's an emotional roller coaster up and down. And one minute you're you're tickled pink that you're up there. The next minute you think you're crazy for leaving your family to go on an adventure like that. And so by the time you're done, you're just like you're kind of mentally done. You know, you just need a break for a while. And that's setting up the the campsite every day, uh, you know, setting it up every day and tearing it down every day. You're right, man. I was, I'm right there with you. It's like if I have to do this one more time, I'm gonna freak out. <laughs> well, we we did have that scenario, like you say, you get a really good system with your buddies, and everybody chips in, and it goes pretty quick. And, and it's you know, it's also packing the raft every day and unpacking the raft every day. And then we got to the end of our trip. And uh, we were 100 miles away from where we were flying into. We flew out of the, the Coldfoot there, the airport there in Coldfoot. And so we'd have to pack all our stuff up, get ready for the float plane, and then we'd get a, a spot messenger um, – or uh, it's Delorme now – messenger that, uh, that that our pilot couldn't make it due to weather there, couldn't take off. And so then it, it dang near drove us crazy. We'd have our tent, all our stuff packed up sitting on the gravel bar, and then we'd have to set up our tent again and then do it the next day. And, and we actually had to stay two extra days while moose season was closed just because he couldn't fly out. But you're right. At the end of it, it was like, if I have to set up this tent one more time, I'm going to snap. <laughs> 
Yeah, I hear you. And it's interesting. I didn't know that, that you had to stay two extra days. And that You hear that story a lot. We were fortunate when we got picked up when we were supposed to be. But I know one gentleman in particular, this is a pretty extreme example, but just to give everybody an, an idea of just how long you could, how much longer you could be out there than what you planned for. He was out there for 11 extra days because of weather. And the pilots just either couldn't leave or couldn't get to him because of the weather system that had moved in. And he said he did a lot of fishing. <laughs> and thank goodness he had a fishing uh, rod with him and everything. But, um, yeah, you just never know. There's a lot of variables on these types of trips. And, I, you know, I've touched a little bit uh, a couple times on, on the nutrition side of it. And I'm not a nutritionist, and I'm not going to pretend to be. But we uh, got to participate in a wilderness health study that was done by a gentleman uh, at the University of Fairbanks that is friends with uh, Bartlett. And we got to, um, it was a very limited uh, sample set that they had, but a really neat study that we got to be a part of. So the day before that we left on uh, the float, we got to go up to the University of Fairbanks and meet their their team up there. And we had some serious in-depth uh, health analysis done on our bodies with uh, an MRI that we got, uh, a DEXA scan, uh, so body fat percentages and everything, and and then also riding an exercise bike with this giant, well, felt giant was on your head, this uh, oxygen sensing apparatus that that had a computer output reading going to this computer system they had, and they would exert you at different levels uh, on this bike. And every two minutes, it would kick up to another exertion level and until your breathing level was getting to where you just couldn't keep up. And then they'd shut the machine down, and then they monitor that, and we'd weigh in and everything. And then once we got out of the float, we had to do the same thing to see how your body changed over that 10 to 13-day period. And then also every single morning while we were on the float, we had vials that we had to take urine samples in. And then they monitored and tested all that. In fact, they're doing that right now and compiling their, their results. So it's February as we do this podcast. That was in September. So it takes quite a while to go through all those results. But uh, we're going to plan, hopefully, an article in a magazine or an update on the TV show or something with uh, with that whole trip and, and, that, and that wilderness study because I don't think anything like that's been done that intense with hunters. It's been done with athletes a lot, of course but not with a hunting crowd in that official of a format. And I was honored to be a part of it. They called and asked if we wanted to participate. I'm like, absolutely. And I'm a, a biologist by trade. And so some of that stuff really interests me anyway. And, uh, and so is Casey. So we participated in that. And the joke of the trip was I told them that the title of the TV show or the, or the uh, article that we may do in the journals is uh, You're in Alaska. <laughs> because of all the, the urine samples we had to take every day. I'm like, I did not think part of my pack list was going to be urine samples, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> oh, how interesting, though. Uh, you have to share those results with me when you get them back. Uh, that is really cool. Yeah, it was pretty neat. And there's little things about your you know, your body, like your fingernails, I noticed uh, uh, just even a couple weeks ago. Well, I was more than that, probably a month ago. I, I was... We were at the, the supper table at our house, and I looked down at my fingernails, and I hadn't noticed it before. There was this ridge at the same level of all ten of my fingernails. And I looked, my wife's a nurse, and I said, have you ever seen anything like that before? I've never noticed that on my fingernails. 
And she said it probably is coinciding with your trip to Alaska because your body was under extreme duress, similar to growth rings on a tree, that the, the rings were tighter, so to speak. And so I had this funky looking ridge on all, and they're almost done growing out now, but you can still see it. And the reason why we could tell that it was probably from the Alaska trip was because when we were pounding in tent stakes on those gravel bars, I smashed two of my fingers a couple times in a row while pounding them in with another rock. And it was exactly at that level on all 10 of my fingers where that ridge was. And, and that even surprised the Ph.D. professor up at uh, University of Fairbanks. Um, he was pretty shocked to hear that. So I recently sent him photos of all my fingernails so he could see those results and tie them into the study. Oh, wow. How interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh it's such a neat experience though. You know, I came away from it. I didn't kill a moose up there as well, but it was just like that one experience that I had to do once in my life. And I I want to go back. I'm I'm saving my pennies so I can do another one because I love to kill an Alaskan Yukon moose. Um, but it it was you kind of have to adapt to the terrain and adapt to the conditions you're getting to hunt that place. And so you know, hunting there, you know, I. I love finding vantage points, and I love glassing over vast terrains. And where I started up high on the system, it it was more open. And so I was able to get to these glassing points, and I was able to find moose that way uh, by by getting to these high points where I could look over immense amounts of country. And, and then we would also mix that up by doing calling sessions in big flats where we would see a lot of moose sign. They like the, the big timber flats, and so we do calling sequences, but I – I think it's important as you're floating the river that you stop. Um, you know, I'd stop as much as I could. I'd pull that raft over and just climbing up the bank, you can see so much more than you can when you're down in the river. And so I think that's really important for guys that, you, you know, you have spots that you want to hunt from and, and places where you want to camp. You can kind of look on a map and plan it out a little bit, but make sure you're stopping along the way and climbing that high bank and looking to see what's around you. Yeah, definitely. Because if you don't, you're going to miss a lot of game. You're going to miss a lot of opportunity. I mean, that, that close encounter that we had with that bullet was just sublegal. Uh, one night we had our, our camp set up, We and I think we stopped at around 5 o'clock or something, got our camp set up, and then we went out hunting uh, for the duration of the, the evening there. And uh, we call, And the other thing with moose hunting that I didn't know really until I went to British Columbia last year and, and hunted with Dan Brooks is that you have to be so patient. They are some of the most patient animals from the big game side of things, I think, on the planet. Their ears are, their, their hearing is just phenomenal. And they're so used to low densities of their own species that they will wait and wait and wait and wait until they know for sure what they're looking at, what they're hearing, and then they'll come in. We called for between an hour and a half and two hours on that gravel bar, uh, it was a great big gravel bar. We were, had our tent at one end, and we went to the other end. And we're calling, and the habitat looked really, really moosey. And we called, and about ready to 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 hang it up, going, "Oh, well, it's kind of the evening, I guess. We'll go back to the tent and and you know cook supper and all that stuff." And and uh, right about the time we were going to quit, we looked across the river, and we were at a shallow part of the river where there was a pretty easy crossing to walk across. Um, we saw a moose paddle. And he was probably 80 yards away at the time. 
And from the side, we thought he was legal. He looked pretty nice. And then when he looked straight on, we could see he didn't have four brow tines on either side. And he was probably that upper 40s uh, for spread. And we're like, oh, man, he's right there. And uh, and since we we thought we use it as an educational opportunity. And Casey wasn't, my buddy Casey wasn't really excited about that because obviously when moose, in the rut, when moose are in the rut, they can be really dangerous. And, and I had my recurve with, and I said, oh, I'm going to mess with this bull, and we're going to learn a thing or two. And he goes, man, I don't think that's a good idea. If you get this thing all riled up and he doesn't leave, we're, you know, we can't shoot him because he's not legal. So what are we going to do? I'm like, no, 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 it'll be fine. And, and so I looked at him, and I, I, I gave a big old cow call. And the, the river was really loud, so it was still kind of hard to hear. And I got his attention. And so he pinpointed where we were at. And I stepped out from the willows that we were standing in. And I started doing the swaying back and forth. And I started grunting at him. And we did this parallel of each other for I don't know how long up and down this river bank across the river from each other. And he would rake brush and then I'd rake brush and he'd call back and I'd call back and we kept doing this. And it was just honestly the experience of a lifetime. And even though he wasn't a legal bull, but it gave me the confidence because he wasn't legal. I wasn't really worried about screwing it up. And so I learned a ton in just this hour that we played around with this bull. And then he, he, he finally got so worked up that he, he came across the river at us and I, put my recurve down and I waved my arms up in the air and I yelled at him saying, you know, get out of here. The fun's over, get out of here, clap my hands. And usually they'll snap out of it. And he did not snap out of it. He kept oh. coming and grunting, coming across the river. And by this time he's probably, I don't know, 40 yards from us. And, uh, Casey's yelling at me cause he's not real happy with me now. Cause this moose is coming onto this Island that we're camped on that we can't just run away from this thing. And, and he's just, he's just rut crazed. He's rutted up and he's ready to dance, you know? And, and, and I kept, I, I, I quit grunting, but he, and he's still grunting, run, uh, coming across the river. I just going, whoa, 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 just kept doing it, swaying his head at me. And I, he, I, he was really mad at me. And, um, and I, I had a pistol with for, for bear defense and I got the pistol out and I, I just shot it to try to scare him away. And he, the noise scared him. He spun around in circles, did a 360, and looked around like, what was that noise? And then he sees me again, puts his head down, whoa, 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 <laughs> just kept, kept coming. And I had to do that twice. He still wasn't going to leave. We went running back through the willows on this island trying to figure out what we're going to do to get him out of there. And as we're figuring out a plan, here comes his paddles through these willow trees. He's 12 yards away, and he stops looking for us because he, he didn't, doesn't know where we went. And I told Casey, I said, I don't know if this is going to work, but you run out on that side of the cover. I'll run out on this side of the cover. We'll yell and act like crazy people and wave our arms in the air, run at him, just kind of rush him, and hopefully he'll leave. If he doesn't, I don't know what we're going to do. And he, he finally, when he saw us do that, he kind of reared up like a horse and thought, yeah, I'm out of here. It's enough. But still, he went back across the river, walked down the river channel, so he's directly across from our tent, which there wasn't a crossing. It was a pretty deep channel right there. And he grunted at us for probably another 30 minutes. And uh, that, that was, that, to me, that was worth a trip right there. And Casey, my, my friend, is pretty funny. He said, you know, the thing that was freaking me out, if he, if he thought you were the bull, he thought I was the cow. <laughs> and he said, what was he coming to do? <laughs> it was funny. Oh, what a cool experience. That's a rutted up bull that you want to find. He just has to be a few inches bigger. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was it was a super neat experience, but 
Um, you know, guys that live up there probably get to do that all the time, but, um, guys like us that don't, you don't get to see that very often. And, you know, we took advantage of it and then got to experience that. And I'm glad it worked out that, you know, nobody got hurt out of the deal, but it was, it was sure a learning experience to see what they would do in that, in that circumstance. Yeah. How cool. Uh, well, and you made a good point, like you talking about how patient they are and they, they don't come in like an elk comes in. They don't come in right away. Like they can come in hours later. Like you can make a call and we had one bull that was a shooter bull and I was, we were hunting the afternoon evening. We had found a really good flat that had a ton of moose sign in it. You just knew moose were in there. There was fresh tracks. We had a skiff of snow. There was, there was fresh tracks, um, fresh scat. Uh, and so I would go in this flat, get my wind right, and I'd start calling and calling in the afternoon and then in the evening. And my last call set was right above camp, and we sat there until the sun started to set and then walked back to camp. And so we're sitting around the fire at camp there and, and uh, talking, and, and all of a sudden I can hear it. I can hear a bull grunt. I said, hey, guys, be quiet for a second. I hear, I hear a bull. And uh, this bull had come in like two hours later, and it came on the opposite side of the river and then crossed this giant river that's pretty deep and then walked right through our camp grunting the whole time. And we're hiding you know, down by the fire, trying to hide the fire in the tent and not make any noise. So hopefully we can hunt that bull in the morning. But I could see him. you know, There was a full moon or a, a partially full moon. And so I could see with my binos as he was crossing the river and he was just a gigantic bull that came across there. <laughs> we never did catch up with him the next day, but, um, it, it just to, to your point, like, um, calling, like you have to call and make a set and that moose may come in hours later, not minutes later. Yeah. And don't, you know, we're so cautious in the lower 48 of where we set our camps up as far as the animals seeing us and if they if they saw the tent they're out of there or whatever that's not the case up north they don't see a lot of that and if if that's where they want to be in fact we had one uh, decent sized bull in the middle of the night walk 10 yards from our from our tent at about i think it was three in the morning and we got woken up by this grunt well first of all we heard something splashing in the water and at first we thought something was getting into our rafts and we tried to make sure the, the blood was off of Casey's raft, if there was any on there at all from his animal, and so that a bear wouldn't get into it or whatever. But initially, Casey woke up, and he thought that something was dragging our rafts off because it was so loud. Well, it turns out it was just a big old bull that was walking across the river, walks right between our rafts and our tent, 10 yards from our tent at, at 3 in the morning. And so it doesn't matter. If, if you're, even with caribou, if you're where they're where they want to be, they're going to come there. It's just the way it is. And so, you know, being concerned about your tent setup seems like the longer that we were on that trip and the more we learned that that was really not much of a concern. I mean, if they, if they were at the point where they wanted to come, they're going to come either way. And, and, and there's not a lot you can do to really spook them. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Um, hunting around your camp can definitely be effective as you are just right in the travel corridor of those moose in there. And, and, um, yeah, those, those things, they're, they're, they're really fun to hunt. They're just, um, gosh, they're, they, you know, even though their, their numbers are condensed, like their, their numbers per square mile, like we talked earlier, there's just not a lot of them around. So you can go a day or two without seeing a moose uh, very easily, you know, so you got to really read the sign of the river and try to find the spots they like to hang out and then focus on those spots, which can be tough because, you know, when you're on a river float, you have a deadline to be picked up. And so I think it's always good to have 
like a few extra days in your trip where you know you don't have to be on the river day in day out that if you find a good location or a good area that you can stay and hunt it for a day or two and and maybe get into those animals a little bit more yeah i agree i I think you know patience is the key like we already said with moose hunting and and if you can spend so you know a day or two really hard hunting one particular real moosey looking spot um i think nine times out of ten you're going to be successful it's just the name of the game is patience and you know they're solitary animals by nature and um you know we did a bunch of tips and stuff with dan brooks uh, crystal lake resort up in british columbia when when we were up there a couple of years ago and we put him on our youtube channel he's just an encyclopedia of moose knowledge and uh one of the things that that he really preaches to all of his hunters is they're solitary animals. And so by nature, they're skeptical when they hear another moose, because most of the time there's not supposed to be another moose around. That's their home territory and they're not gregarious at all. And so when they're coming into a, a call or, a, you know, your horn brushing or whatever, they're naturally skeptical unless they're just absolute peak of the rut. Then they're going to come in no matter what. But your movements are so key during that time because if they pick up – their eyesight isn't the best. But if they pick up on movement, they will stand there sometimes for 30 minutes piercing a hole right through you and not moving. And so you can't move either because if you do, the jig is up and they're going to leave. Oh, yeah, really interesting. That had to be fun to pick Dan Brooks's um, brain on on hunting moose since he's just spent a lifetime of hunting them in close encounters up there. He really knows his species as good as anybody else, you know, in Canada or Alaska. That had to be really interesting and and uh, uh, great insight for you. Yeah, I mean, because when you think about it, since there's not a lot of people that can hunt moose, not only because of the cost, but also. Um, there's just not a lot of animals, you know, compared to deer or elk or antelope or anything else. Um, so the opportunities are limited. And so there's very few people really in this world that are experts on moose because they just haven't had that experience around them. And Dan Brooks has been, well, he's in his early forties, I think. And he's been guiding moose hunters since he was 14 years old, I think was what I heard. And, uh, he's just, I mean, the guy has forgotten more about moose than what most people ever know. He's just, it was really an educational experience, which was really nice to do a hunt like that before I went up to Alaska and did a DIY adventure because, you know, you're investing that kind of time and money. You want to make sure you at least kind of know what you're doing before you go up there. And that's another thing I was going to ask you, Brian, you did this DIY adventure like I did. Were you shocked at the total end dollar figure that you spent on this quote-unquote affordable hunt? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was. It all just adds up. You kind of have a rough number in your head that you're planning on. You think, well, that's not too bad. I can budget for that. I can do that. But there's just so much added cost with the, you know, you start yeah. getting into the float plane back and forth. And there's a couple ways to go about it. I think you did it where you paid for your animals up front. So if you shot animals, it was going to be the same price as if you didn't. I did mine the other way where I paid for my float trip in, but 
if I killed a moose, it was going to get expensive to fly it out of there. And so, yeah, you just start adding up all that, and then your your uh, commercial flights up there, float plane, by the time you get your rafts, by the time you get your food, it just all starts to add up. And I, I added it up in the end, and um, it was about double uh, what I figured that I wanted to spend up there when I first committed to the hunt. And so – uh yeah guys really got to be careful as the the cost climbs really quick and i think i did like um and i'm just shooting from the hip trying to remember i think i did my trip for around five or six thousand um per guy um and we went to this really remote spot in alaska we wanted to chase the or have a chance at the biggest alaskan yukon moose that you could get so we were kind of the farthest spot that you could fly to and float a river and, and you know the biologist told us there were some really good bulls that frequent in there that you're going to see some of the 60s and 70s which we did um but yeah i think i was around the five six thousand dollar mark and i think if i would have killed a bull moose i had to get another plane in there to get that out i think i would have been more in a, around the the eight to nine thousand dollar mark and that's for a do-it-yourself hunt so yeah it added up uh, really quick for me as well yeah, that, those dollar figures completely mirror what our hunt was. I, uh, you know, we did the fixed rate bush flights, so that way if we did get something, we weren't going to be, you know, penalized with the weights and everything. But you know, the downside is if you don't get a whole lot, like we only got the one caribou, which really isn't a ton of weight. Um, you know, they made a they made a lot of money off of us because it didn't cost that much. But you know, it's just a gamble you take. But I was budgeting on the low end four thousand, on the high end six thousand. Um, you know, thinking you know, and I've been saving up for this for quite a while, and do this do-it-yourself adventure to save all kinds of money. And well, I was adding up all of my receipts. I mean, down to the last grocery bill and rental car and whatever else I had to get when I was up there. And it was between eight and nine thousand. I think it was right around eighty five hundred bucks. I was adding up the receipts on the way back on our plane rides and stuff. And yeah, I, I hadn't really added anything up for a while because it's like a two to three year process of planning this and booking things. You know, it's five hundred bucks here and a couple hundred bucks there and fifty bucks there, and pretty soon you're several thousand dollars into this and and you know it's still a great adventure and it's worth doing. But just so everybody knows. Affordable is a rel- is a relative term. I mean, it's still you're still talking about eight thousand dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money. Oh, it's so and, uh, much especially money. For, especially for a guy like me, I'm just a normal dude that makes a normal living, and I don't. I mean, <laughs> I'm not raking in the cashola, and so it was a. Uh, I, I was a little bit. I don't know what the word is. Maybe a little bit upset with myself for not watching it closer. Not that I could have saved any more because we were pretty frugal with everything we did, but I was just astounded at what the total bill was. It was about two to three grand more than what I had budgeted. That was a tough pill to swallow. I'm thankful I have an understanding wife. I will say that. Yeah, I I felt the same way. It, uh, I'm just an average blue collar guy, and to spend that kind of money, it hurts. Like you have to work so hard for that money, and it 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 was well worth every penny I spent. And I'm glad I did the adventure. Is that experience is is a once in a lifetime for me. So it was so fun to do. But I had the same feelings when I added it up in the end and found out what I spent. Like it it's hard for me to swallow that pill. Uh, uh, of that much money to go on a hunt like that. So yeah, uh, guys do want to be prepared to do it, but you're going to be two, two and a half, or even three times to do that on a guided trip. And do it yourself is 
to to plan everything and to get all your stuff yourself is I mean, to me, uh, makes for you know. I like that experience more. I, I like to be in charge of things and in charge of the planning. And, and so for me, the do-it-yourself was the only option. But um, yeah, it it does get up there. It, it is not inexpensive to hunt Alaska anymore. And actually, the the tag price doubled on you last year. Did you get in on the the uh, cheaper prices buying it before January first, or did you have to pay the the new tag prices? I was able to get in the the old license structure by about a week is what I made it by. I I just found out on a fluke thing at the last minute. Actually, I think it was uh, Bartlett had texted me, said, you know, make sure that you buy your tags in time or else the fees are going to double. And the agency was good to work with as far as letting you buy it a year in advance under the current prices before they went up. But, yeah, they when I heard that they were going to double, I thought, well, that's – an expression, they're going to go up. I doubt they're going to double. No, they literally doubled everything. They doubled, yeah. Yep, and and so now let's just say if I would go and do that trip again, the same trip would cost me probably another two grand. Yes. Yep, that's so, the same it, thing I found too. And then, um, yeah, caribou prices doubled and uh, moose prices doubled and, uh, well, all of their big game really. And so – yeah, it's um, it's tough. A guy's really got a budget for it and decide that's what he wants to do. But I, I do think float hunting is, is one of the best ways to hunt Alaska. You can you can also do the drop camps. Some of the super cubs can really get in on some small runways where there isn't much pressure. But you know they've got to plant you right in that moose spot, and and that's tough to guarantee that that you're not gonna be there and see a handful of cows and not see a bull. I've heard of that before, and you know you can do. You know, there is some driving things you can do in Alaska, but there's not many roadways. And in a lot of the trails up there, you know, you can use ATVs and, and uh, UTVs on them. But at the same time, that's what every all the locals can do. So all the locals from Fairbanks and Anchorage are using all those same river systems. So you end up hunting in a lot of pressure. There's not a, as big a bulls. You know, it's not the same experience. So, I mean, I do think the float trip is a great way to see Alaska and a great way to experience that, that wild and, and vast remote country and have an adventure of a lifetime up there. But, yeah, you definitely got a budget. And um, with tag prices going up and the cost of avgast, uh, it's definitely not a cheap hunt. No, it's not. You know, and it's one of those things that you have to balance with what your priorities are in life. If that's something that you want to save up for years and, and write that check for or, or not. I mean, you know, I heard a, a really wise person tell me a number of years ago, in fact, he's a guy that does uh, do it yourself, Alaska hunting seminars. At least he used to, I don't know if he still does. He'd been guiding in Alaska for, um, or at least flying in Alaska for 20 or 30 years, and he was just an immense resource. Um, he's a gentleman that's from North Dakota. He's, I think his name is Mark Hamilton or Mark Hamill. But anyway, um, he said that life is, and this we weren't even talking about hunting at the time. We were just talking about life in general. And you know, life is full, is made up of the experiences that you live. And I know that sounds pretty simple, but you think about it, and yeah, you can be super cautious in life and you can pinch your pennies and you can you know live a pretty conservative lifestyle which isn't a bad thing but sometimes you just got to step out there and you got to do some exciting things and and what's exciting to you might not be exciting to somebody else but whatever trips your trigger as long as it's legal and ethical and moral um you got sometimes you just got to take a chance you know you got to see what you're made of and that's what i tell my kids my i've got four little kids and and when i come back from even you know backpacking hunts that 
push you to the limits physically and mentally and you get done, you know, seven days in the back country or whatever and you get back home and you've lost 10 to 15 pounds and, and you're just wore out. And sometimes they look at you kind of weird, like, why are you doing this to yourself? And I tell the kids part of the, part of the reason why I do it is you, you got to, I don't know, test yourself is, a, is the right word, but it, it always shows you what you're made of. And for me, I need that personally. I need that constant, a little bit of a test, a little bit of a, little bit of a push so I don't get lazy. And because for me, when I get lazy, then I get, I get careless, I get soft, I get, I get unintentional with life. And I know you and I both love that word intentional, whether it's being a father or a husband, uh, an employee, an employer, a hunter, whatever. Whatever you're doing, do it as hard as you can, as best as you can. And so that way, you know, to use a sports analogy, you leave it all in the field and uh, you have no regrets when you're done. And even if you come out of, uh, you know, do it yourself, Alaska, remote with no animals, you know, you gave it your all when you were out there. You had the venture of a lifetime. You're probably with one of your best friends in the world. And, uh, and it was worth it. You know, it just was. Absolutely. You know, yeah, um, it's part of living life to the fullest. And, and what you get out of of that hunt is, uh, you know, you, you come back with, with more perspective and, and, uh, you have adventure in your life. You feel like you're like you're living life. And so, um, I, I'm with you, uh, every adventure I've ever taken, uh, you know, I, I've never regretted it in the end. I've grown from it and it, it, you know, it makes me a stronger person as well. Testing my limits like that, it it makes life easier. Pretty soon, if somebody cuts me off on the on the highway, uh, you know, I'm not so quick to get upset. It's like, it, you know, that isn't a big deal. I I've been in Alaska and I've been around grizzly bears. Like that's a big deal. <laughs> you know, that's life and death. Like this guy cut me off. I slow down. I'll still get home. I'll still get to work. It's it's just not that big of a deal. But it gives me perspective in my life. It gives me passion in my life. And, and it keeps me in good shape as I train, and in this good shape and this healthy lifestyle, you're going to be able to live longer and and uh, and be able to share this with your kids and share adventures with your kids. But um, really, I I'm so fortunate that I do have passion in life and something that I do want to work hard for and save for and this great adventure that I'm going to go on. Like uh, I, I you know whatever. I think that's the essence of life, and and no matter if it's you know backcountry bow hunting that you like, or if it's hunting you like, or mule deer, or elk, or or whether it's tennis or golf or whatever it is, but uh, yeah, having that passion in life is, is everything, and has made me the man I am, and the father I am, and husband I am. So I I never regret going on these adventures, and and just want to do more in the future. But um, guy definitely has to budget for one like that. Yeah, definitely. Like I think you hit the nail on the head with perspective. And you know, when when seriously hard times in life come, whether it's somebody gets cancer or somebody has a, you know, you lose your job or whatever, it's some of these little life lessons you learn in the backcountry that really help you ascertain perspective that you you know that the sun's gonna come up tomorrow. I can get through this, and you know, I, I've been through some serious situations and. And this is not a big deal. I can, I can manage it. And there's a guy that I know here in our town in, in, in uh, northern Wyoming where the Eastman's office is. <laughs> he actually goes to our church, and he's a good mechanic in town and everything. He's just a wealth of information. And one of his famous sayings is, I've seen a big deal. And this ain't it. <laughs> he says that all the time when people get all worked up about stuff. He says, I've seen a big deal, and this isn't it. It's a, it's a great uh, a great saying to keep in mind. I really like that saying. I've heard Ike say that. 
Yeah, in fact, that's where we all got it from. Was from this gentleman. His name is Paul, and uh, he he's just he's witty and full of little one-liners like that. Oh, it's great. Well, um, thanks so much for sharing the adventure with me, Brandon. Um, it, it It's always so fun to talk with you, and uh, I'm glad we were finally able to put this together and, and share our experiences up there, and hopefully we, we help other guys uh, shorten their learning curve in, in float hunting Alaska. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, anybody that's listening, don't hesitate to email anybody in our office and, and ask these questions if you're going on an adventure like this. Well, I mean, we're not guides or outfitters or anything like that or, or a licensing service, but we're, we just like to help people be successful. We have the, the, the advantage to being able to do this for a living and, and hopefully, you know, cut out some of the painful mistakes that we've made over the years and even people before us made over the years and, you know, help your once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime adventure trip, you know, become not only a reality, but it's safe and it's fun and it was rewarding and uh, not have to relearn all the same lessons that, that all of us have done doing it. I mean, you know, like they say, the, if you fail to learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And there's no sense in relearning dumb mistakes. Absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better. So uh, thanks a bunch, Brandon. We'll uh, talk to you soon. Sounds good, Brian. Appreciate it. All right. That's a wrap. Uh, thanks to Brandon Mason for recording the podcast. Um, like I say, I always really enjoy talking to that guy. So that was a fun one. Uh, float hunting Alaska. Um, it, it's just a, a a great way to see that that vast wilderness and and uh, vast open spaces that Alaska has to offer. So um, really cool one to sit down with Brandon. Uh, sponsor for today's show was uh, Bloodsport Arrows. So again, um, just great uh, straightness tolerances, weight tolerances. Uh, their components are good. Um, so I've had good luck with their arrows. Really impe- impressed by their broadheads, uh, both their their straight expandable and then their their hybrid grave digger has done me right. And uh, also their fixed blade. If you're a fixed blade guy, they've got a good uh, three blade fixed blade that I used in Idaho this year. Um, so uh, make sure to check those out. Um, we did have, uh, gosh, that I was really proud of that Idaho TV show that uh, came out, my Idaho mule deer hunt from this year where I had my buddy Dan Haverin video it for me. Um, gosh, I sure think that turned out cool. It's like the first one that I'm, you know, I was proud of the other ones, but this one I think um, does a, a really good job of portraying the, the backcountry spot, uh, the backcountry hunting. Um, you know, you... You get your chance to film, and you're on all these great adventures, and and uh, you you just think, gosh, if I just get a chance to capture this and and show the audience like how neat this backcountry hunting is and the adventures that we have back here, and and you get your chance, and you're not comfortable talking into a camera, and you don't know the right shots to get, and it's really tough to put together. But I've been gaining experience, and this last one in Idaho, I am really proud how it came out. So um, we did get a, a few negative comments, so I do all my filming and then pass it on to my editors and I had done a, a segment on expandable broadheads uh, and, and how they open and to make sure you check the tension and just did it in my garage because I also was uh, I was filming an elk hunt here in Montana and some different hunts and so um, Eastman's where the editor when they edited it in they edited in the expandable broadhead along um, while hunting in Idaho, which is a fixed blade only state. And so it, it just wasn't a, a very good, um, 
it uh, it was just something that got missed. So um, I think we were able to change it out, but um, I did get a couple comments on that. And yes, I did use fixed blades in Idaho. Uh, I worked really hard to get them to shoot good out of my bow and shot that buck with a fixed blade. So it was just a matter of editing those clips together that made it look like I used an expandable, but no big deal. It's just, um, it, that's part of it. When you have me putting together all the footage and then sending it to the editor and I didn't get a chance to pre-look at anything, but, uh, it came out really good. I'm really proud of the episode. So, um, that was really neat for me to get that opportunity and then to be able to arrow a nice box. So pretty cool. Make sure you check that out. Um, over there at Eastman's, uh, I did see a new deal where we have both magazines, um, 12 issues for $20 for the entire year. Uh, make sure you take advantage of that, guys. Uh, right now, putting in for out-of-state hunts, we have our MRS section, uh, Members Research Supplement, uh, that comes when you're a, a subscriber to Eastman's. Um, so, I mean, for $20 to be able to learn what tags are good in other states and, and even just to, to look for, for future applications, you know, maybe you're not right and maybe it's not ready. You're not ready or it's not right this season, but it will be next season. And so, you know, to gain that information year after year, it kind of lets you know the, the trends of these units. So I use it. It's a great resource. So, uh, make sure to check out that deal through Eastman's. I think I saw the ad on, um, Instagram. Um, so I'm sure you can click on it from there. Or go to Eastman's.com and, uh, yeah, I saw that deal, $20 for both magazines. That's a heck of a deal. So I might renew my subscription as well. Um, so that's it. Uh, that's the episode. Let's see. We got the sponsor. What's going on at Eastman's? Yeah, it's, thanks again to Brandon. Um, always thank you guys for all the support. Uh, the podcast has really taken off. We saw some great growth last month. Um, it's the most downloads we've ever had. Um, so it's really neat to to see this venture um, grow and and uh, see you guys so passionate about it. I did a new question and answer today about a, a backpack episode that I want to do that I'm going to record after this one. Uh, the feedback was just amazing. You know, I got uh, 20 or so questions to answer on there, and it's it's uh, just great this community that we're building, and, and uh, hopefully we're, we're all making each other better, and the guys that are willing to put in the work are, are going to find that success. So um, I really appreciate it, guys. Um, keep working hard towards your goals, and check in with you next week.